Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And uh, I'd like to welcome you too, especially if you're here visiting. Uh, thanks for coming and joining us for worship this morning. I see a number of people as well who are old church family members and who are back visiting. And it's good to see you all also. Uh, you find us here this morning at the end of a series on the book of Mark, actually the first half of the book of Mark. We've been talking this semester about how Mark presents to us this picture of Jesus who is the King who has come. And we've been talking each week about what that means for us. And so <clears throat> we wrap up this morning We will, to let you know we'll come back to Mark next January. So we'll be back and finish up the book of Mark after a couple other things. This next week, we're going to be starting a series for the summer on uh, the life of Abraham. So we're going to be looking this summer at Genesis 12 through 23. So just this week sometime, I'd recommend that you take some time and read those chapters of Genesis as a way of preparing for what's ahead and start thinking a little bit about the life of Abraham and what goes on. You're going to see this incredible saint who messes up in incredible ways, and through it all, we see a God who is faithful in spite of it all. So that's what we're going to be looking at this summer. This morning, we're going to be looking at... uh at uh, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, we're going to look at a, read a few verses where we, that we looked at last week just by means of introduction. So chapter 8, verse 31, and then we'll be going through verse 1 of chapter 9. you find that on page 844 of your pew Bible, if you're using that. But first, let me pray for us. Let's go to our God together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your presence, which you promised to give us. Because we're your people and we cry out to you and we need you and you know it and you're here. We pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes to your word, which is scripture here. Would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? Would you give us hearts that are malleable in your hands, that are soft towards you? That We might be changed, that we might learn, that we might grow, that we might be reminded that more and more we might be remade in the image of Christ whose righteousness we now have already because of His death on the cross, His rising from the grave, that we might be brought into Your family. So we thank You and we come to You, our Father, in the name of that very same Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands together. So we turn to it this morning. This is one of those passages, and you've been looking at it for 
eight seconds now. This is how it struck me this week as I have spent the week in this passage. It's one of those that if, if you listen, if you're hearing what it has to say, it just kind of takes your breath away. I mean, you, you know what, you know what the feeling is like on a hot summer day when you jump into the cold, cold lake? <laughs> Suddenly all your breath is gone till you're able to sort of open your lungs again and acclimate and let the cold just wash over you. It's a kind that jolts you awake. Reminds you that there's something going on around you that's even maybe more significant and serious than we often realize day in and day out. So here's what it is. Here's what we see here. That Jesus deliberately went to the cross and if we are going to follow Him, then we go to the cross also. That He went to the cross and that's where He calls His people, those who follow Him, to go as well. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? Well, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see here um, in this passage the cost of following in that way, the paradox of following, and then finally the promise of following. Those three things, cost, paradox, and promise. First, the cost of following. Look at me again, with me again at verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, the way it sounds on the surface, it sort of sounds like there's at least three different things going on here. He says, you know, if anyone would come after me, let him do these three things. Let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. Okay, we, we get lost a little bit in the translation here because on the front end and the tail end of this verse when he says, if anyone would come after me, and then at the end when he says, follow me, those are actually translating the same word. Okay, even though our English translation translates it differently. So in other words, they could have said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come after me. If anybody would follow after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. See, he's what that draws our attention to is kind of these two main components in the middle here. If you want to come after me, he's saying, then do this, deny yourself, take up your cross, and you'll know that you are following me. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Really here, I think we have two sides of the same coin. On one side, we see this, say no to self. On the other side, we see this, say yes to God. Two sides of the same coin of what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross. When he says deny ourselves, he's talking about this sort of sustained saying no to ourselves. A life of saying no. Not and When he says this, he's not simply saying If you're going to be a good Christian, then make sure you say no to certain things in your life. Fill in the cultural list that you have, right? Say no to certain kinds of of movies. Say no to um, certain kinds of actions. Refrain from certain things. He's saying no. He's not simply, he's saying not simply say no to certain things in your life. He's saying, I want you to come and say no to the very core of yourself, to the dominance of yourself. You're to say no to that, to the very impulse inside of us that drives us so desperately to scrap for our own existence. He says, I want you to say no to that. One commentator says this, the central thought in self-denial is a disowning of any claim that may be urged by the self, a sustained, a a sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to be able to say yes to God. Not just saying no to sleeping in on Sunday so you can get up and come to church. 
Not simply saying no to self so you can do your religious duty, but saying no to your very self that you might find God. He says that kind of no. So he says deny yourself the one side of the cross or the one side of the coin, and then the other side is to take up your cross and follow Him. Now, we hear that, and you've heard it said this way likely, but it, you know, we do have sort of a sanitized view of the cross. There are little things that we wear around our necks. We've got a nice carved Celtic one up here behind me. You know, the cross is Christian decoration. Well, of course, for these people, when they heard Jesus not having any idea of where he was going, when they heard him say, take up your cross and follow me, they only thought of one thing. They thought, here's what I want you to do. Here's what following me means. It means become a criminal in the eyes of the state, that the entire force of the Roman Empire would come crashing down on your head as you would be shamed publicly as you would have to strap on the cross piece of a cross and carry it to the place of execution and be brutally murdered. When they heard cross, that's what they heard. And so when he says this, when he says take up your cross, for them it was a shocking image. It was one that just grabbed them right by the throat. It was the very idea that Peter had just objected to when Jesus said, look, I am going to suffer and die. And Peter said, no, 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 no. That is not the way this is supposed to go. And Jesus says it is. And he goes on to say, and it's going to be that way for you too, if you are going to follow me. Now, this has become an expression for us uh, as we go through maybe certain hardships in life. Well, that's just the that's just my cross to bear. You've heard you've heard that phrase. It comes from this. And and I, I'm here to tell you, because it's been pointed out to me, that this is just not about the the kind of everyday common sufferings and difficulties that come as part of everyone's life all our lives in this broken world it's not it's just not about that in other words at some very real level your cancer is not your cross to bear and your difficult marriage is not your cross to bear and your erring child is not your cross to bear. Jesus speaks to these people and to us specifically about the cost that comes into our life when we say no to ourselves, die to ourselves, and follow Him. It is a death that comes because we are following Him. Now, for some people, for His disciples, for example, that could very well become a literal death. And it does for many around the globe who follow Jesus. But there are many other kinds of death as well. And so let me just try to point out two for us, two ways that this calls us to die, two very particular kinds of death. And let me say it this way, that following Christ and dying in this way means that we lose our bench and we lose our throne. We lose our bench and we lose our throne. First, the bench in our lives, the kind of bench where the judge sits. When he comes and sits down on his bench and rule and uh, gives judgment, we lose that right in our lives. In other words, we die to our own evaluation of ourselves, and we let God, the Judge, tell us who we are and our condition before Him. Now that means a couple different things. When we hear this word, when we take ourselves off the bench and we say that God has the right to look at us and tell us what there is to see. On the one hand, it means that we must deal with this aspect of what our judge says to us, that we are people desperately in need of forgiveness because we are people who have desperately erred and strayed from Him, that we are people who are caught in sin. Our judge comes and says this to us, that the reality of our sin in our lives is the defining characteristic of our spiritual state aside from Him. 
The judge comes and says, no matter how good your life looks to you and maybe even to those around you, compared to my holiness and my righteousness, it falls so far short that even your goodness is your attempt to polish yourself up and it is not enough for me. And it is what everyone who comes in a relationship with God must come through, that judgment pronounced on them. And it is the judgment and evaluation of our God as we continue to struggle with the reality of sin in our lives. We, we said it today in our assurance of pardon. You know, if anyone says that he has no sin, he deceives himself. The truth is not in him. What he's saying is that when the judge comes, he says that sin is the big rock in the middle of our lives and it must be dealt with. And unless we see this initially, we will never see our need for Christ and never turn to Him. But unless as followers of Christ, we continue to listen to Him and recognize the ongoing presence and struggle of sin in our lives, unless we own up to that, Unless we wrestle with and recognize the sinful bent, the sinful words, the sinful thoughts, the sinful deeds, then we're going to be blind to the reality of our real situation. And we're going to lose any sense of intimacy and connection with God. Because if we refuse to listen to what He sees in our life, then we part ways with Him and we miss Him. We won't see our very present need for Jesus, His present provision for us now in the thick of our life here in the present as He is doing His work of hammering out the dents, of sanding down the jagged edges, of making something beautiful out of our souls. We must continue to hear His Word from the bench for us because our plight really is that desperate and our hearts really are that far gone. That's exactly why Jesus has just said these scandalous words to Peter and his disciples. You're right that I am the king, but let me tell you what it is going to take for me to be your king. I am marching to Jerusalem just as you expect me to, but not to pick up a crown, but instead to pick up a cross. I am going to suffering and death because the problem runs this deep. And so we must give up our right to sit in the bench. We must hear the charge that He brings against us. And honestly for us, that ought to make us all the time, frankly, just suspicious of ourselves. You know the disagreements that you get into where you replay them in your head and everything you said was right and everything the other person said was ridiculous? You should be suspicious of yourself. You know the falling out you had with someone that was all about what they did and nothing about what you did? You should be suspicious of yourself. I should be desperately suspicious of myself. Your sin is still here and it is still expressing itself in your life. Where? Second thing is, if it's going to make us suspicious of ourselves, it should also make us open to the confrontation of others, to the voice of others speaking into our lives as they see what is going on. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 3 says as the preacher, the pastor who wrote Hebrews says this to his people. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you hear what he says? He says you need the voice of others speaking into your life because sin is deceitful. Sin, by its very presence and definition, hides itself. It disguises itself from you 
and from me. He says, brothers, don't be hardened by that. Don't let it lead you away, but exhort one another. Bring the truth of the gospel to bear in one another's lives all the time because we are lost and blind without it. So when we lose the bench, that means we are no longer the judge in our own lives, but rather God is. Okay, now, in the bench, we know we, we now let God be the one who speaks that word of evaluation. But there's a second here thing here. We must, in stepping off the bench, we must hear another word from God. We must let Him speak to us, and we must hear His word of pardon. His word of pardon. We listen to the realities of the charges, the reality of our sin, and now we also listen to the gospel, the good news of His forgiveness that comes and covers all of that because of what Christ has done for us. Christ came and died and paid for our sin that we would be forgiven, that our sin would be covered, that our debt would be wiped away, that we would not simply be out of debt, but that suddenly our account would be filled with Christ's righteousness and holiness forgiveness for us that we now get the riches of Christ. We have to hear God speaking that word to us. Now, why is that so hard? I mean, it's one thing to say that we have to submit and listen to God speak those hard words. But now we're saying we have to submit and let God speak that word of pardon to us as well. And maybe on the surface, that just sounds like, well, of course I want to hear that. Of course I can hear him saying that. Well, let me ask you this. Then why is it so hard for you to hear? Why is it so hard for me to hear? That in spite of the weight of your sin, that some of us, it sometimes feels so very acutely that we can hear this voice. I, your father, forgive you because of what my son has done. You are now a part of my family. You are no longer on the outside. You have been brought in. My son, my daughter, your sin has been covered Why is it so hard to hear that? Maybe because it's hard to embrace the fact that God just is not impressed by our intelligence or our career, by how well our kids turned out, by how many degrees we've obtained. He's not impressed by any of that. Instead, we have to learn to count on the fact that God loves us because of what Christ has done for us, not because of what we've done for ourselves, not because of what you have done for yourself, not because of what you have done for God. Instead, He accepts you because of what Jesus has done. So losing the bench in this aspect means we have to hear His word of pardon. It has to speak louder to us than our own voice of condemnation, than our own frustration that we haven't gotten it right yet, than our own desire that our life would seem polished and smooth to everyone around us and actually be that instead of the wreck that it is where we so desperately need God, but that is where He meets us. And where we know that very word of healing and forgiveness. Submitting to His bench means that we listen to His pardon speaking into our lives. So one way we die in following this way of the cross is that we lose our bench. But the second way we die is that we lose the throne. We die to our claim to call the shots in our own lives. We die to our claim to be king of our own lives when we recognize that there is someone else who is king. And there is someone else who must sit in this throne. You see, since Jesus is the true king and He's forgiven you and adopted you into His family and He has moved towards you completely through His grace, not because of your achievement or your effort, He is your king. And because that is true, hear this, 
There is nothing that He cannot ask of you. There is nothing that He cannot ask of you. He is our King. He has bought us by His grace. And that means, taking up the cross and following Him means that we will follow Him wherever He leads us. There is no part of our lives that are outside the realm of His kingship over us. And that often means hard things for us that feel like the way of death. It means forgiving others when they wrong you. It means giving away your money generously and listening to God about how to use even that which you keep. It means caring for the poor and the stranger and the widow and the orphan. It means faithfully loving your spouse even when you seem to be getting nothing in return. It means reaching out to those around you who don't know Christ even when you'd rather be spending time with your Christian friends. One commentator puts it this way, the claim of Jesus is a total and exclusive one. It does not allow a convenient compartmentalization of natural life and religious life, of secular and sacred The whole person stands under Christ's claim. And as the German uh, pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously put it, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Okay, That is the call that we are receiving. That is the cost of following. But secondly, we see in this passage, we see the paradox of following as well. Look at the way he breaks this down for us. Verses 35 through 37. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? And he says, following me and giving yourself for me is a paradox like this. A paradox, something that seems like a contradiction, but at the end of the day is not. We find that it is only through dying that we can have life. It is only this kind of embracing the cross that will actually give us the life that we so desperately want. The first thing we see here in these verses is that your life is of enormous, incomparable value. Do you see how he uses the the language almost of, of trade or of profit when he talks about what is the worth of something here? When he talks about the soul, he says, you know, what what could you possibly give in exchange for your soul? What do you have that is valuable enough that it could ransom your soul. And on the other side, you know, what, what, what is of more value in your soul? What, what is it in this world that would be worth the trade of if I could have that, then you can take my soul? It's the very same temptation that Jesus himself faced at the hands of Satan in the very beginning of the book of Mark, where, where Satan takes and says, takes him and says, look at all of, over all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give these to you if you'll just bow down and call me God. If you will forfeit your soul, I will give you the world in return. And Jesus knew then and he reminds us here that it is a terrible bargain. Because there is nothing within your grasp that is of more value than your life your soul. Because actually, when we see here, when we see life and soul in, the, in these verses, it's, it's really, again, it's the same Greek word. He's talking about the same idea here. And in some contexts, it does have to do with sort of our life, our physical life. 
But more often it digs a little deeper. It has this sense of your very inner self, the thing, the thing that makes you you, the thing that, that is, uh, that is bigger than just the body that you are in. It comes from the Greek word psyche. It's, it's the thing that we identify with our soul, with our spirit, the thing that lasts about us. He says, there is nothing more precious than that. There is nothing more precious to you than the you-ness of who you are. He says, it matters. So in other words, if true life is found only in Christ, then that means that spending your life pursuing anything else is a poor investment, a foolish waste of your soul. And as Jesus speaks this to these disciples, he's not he's not handing them a specific kind of vocation, for example. Therefore, since this is true, go, go be a missionary somewhere, go be a pastor, he he is saying to these people in the midst of all the ordinary parts of their life, he says all of this is to find its coherence in your relationship with God, the fact that God is king and that everything you do matters, even the most mundane aspects of cleaning your house, of doing your paperwork, of going to school, all of it is to be found in this idea of done before the face of God and for Him. That it means for us this paradox that we are not going to find ourselves unless we give ourselves away in this way. Jim Elliott, a missionary to the Aka tribe in South Africa, excuse me, South America, put it this way. He was killed by the people that he was trying to reach and he wrote this in his journal. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And that is what Jesus is saying to us. That your life is enormous value and there's nothing that can be traded for it. But the second part of this, the paradox part of this, is simply this. That the only way to take that thing of inestimable worth, that thing, that you, the only way to save it, the only way to hold on to it, is to give it away. You have to lose your life in order to save it. You have to give yourself up. You have to put yourself in the hands of God and say, I am yours. That means that if you dedicate your life to yourself, to your needs, to your happiness, to your self-discovery, then the very thing you are looking for will slip right through your fingers. You will not be able to hold on to it. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if we but if we die to our own demands for our life, die to our desperate attempts to get what we think we deserve from life and from the world around us, if instead we hand over our very selves to God, then we will find life, find God, find ourselves. I've been having trouble coming up with some many good analogies for what it's like to die in order that you might live. And here's the closest I've got. Think about what happens when you go into surgery, when you literally come under the knife. In particular, think about what happens, and some of you have been through this, when something goes desperately wrong with your heart, the only, and the only way your life is going to be preserved is to go through surgery. What happens? You go and you lie down on a table and you are knocked out so that you have no control over anything in your body. And you hand over complete control to a doctor who is going to do work on you that you cannot do yourself. And as a part of that surgery, what happens? You get hooked up to a lot of machines, to a heart-lung machine. As they are working on your heart, you are no longer even pumping the blood through your own body. 
And if you lose blood, they're going to give you a quart of some or a, whatever it is of somebody else's. I'll find out when we have our next blood drive. They're going to give you someone else's blood. You're so out of control of yourself, you're actually being fed by the blood of someone else. That There's a machine that is doing your breathing for you. From at least one angle, I think we'd have to say this, you're dead. You're not pumping your own blood, you're not breathing for yourself. You could not be in less control of yourself than you are right there. The only way, if you have that diagnosis, to find your life, to have it restored, is to give it utterly up, out of your control. That's what Jesus says. You must hand it to me. And no longer seek to preserve it for yourself. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. The only way to find a life, the only way to find yourself, the only way to save it is by following Jesus. By giving up your claims to your own life that you might find your life in Him. He is not saying this to simply one particular kind of people. Like this. You know, if you're the kind of person that has a religious bent, then come find yourself in me. If you're a spiritual seeker, come find yourself in me. If you find your life so often more than you can handle, then come find yourself in me. He is not simply saying that. You see, his call to the world is absolute. Life is only found in him for any of us. You can only truly find yourself in him, and this life comes paradoxically through dying to self, Denying self, taking up cross, following Him. This is what Paul had in mind when he said this in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul knew what it was like to live in this paradox of if I am going to live, then I am going to die. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me. Paul had not become a robot. He had not become a puppet. He had become someone who is alive for the first time, alive to his God, and alive in his life of service to him. He had given up his life and found it. This follow, this, to, this promise to follow means that it's a promise of, uh, of paradox. But, but finally we see here not only... Um, the paradox of this following, we see the real and lasting promise of this following. See, we've just seen that Jesus said, if you give yourself to me and if you die to yourself, then you will find yourself. But we find out here too in these verses that that finding ourself goes so much deeper and so much longer than maybe we would expect. And we see it first spelled out for us from the reverse. Look what he says in verse 38. He says this, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Do you hear what he says? He says, if you're ashamed of me now, then when I come back in power, then I will be ashamed of you. Now I want us to listen very closely to what Jesus is saying. And it, there's a lot here, but, but here is one aspect of it. He's saying this to us. If you are going to choose to find and define your life away from me, then at the end of the day, you will get exactly what you have asked for in eternity away from me. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, I will give you exactly what you have spent your life asking me for. 
in your repeated no, in your repeated turning away, in the hardenings of your heart where you've spent a life saying, I do not want you. In the end, Jesus says, okay, go your way. But hear the flip side of that. Hear what is told to us in that. He says, if you do this, if you come to me, if you follow me, if you are embraced by me, here and now, you will be embraced by me forever. Then in spite of all the suffering that brings into your life right now, in spite of all the shame potentially, in spite of all the hardship, when I come back in power, when you stand before God, I will own you. He is mine. She is mine. You will be with Him forever. What's the promise of following God in this way? One, that we get ourselves back. But secondly, we see here that we get Jesus. We get the King. We get the one who is of most value. We get the one who stands at the center of all reality. We get the one who rules the universe and who moves towards us in love. We get Him forever. That's what we get as we follow Jesus in this way. Psalm 37, 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the thing that delights you most, Himself, forever. We gain Jesus. We see that in verse 38. And then in verse 1 of chapter 9, He says you are going to be live a life where you are getting glimpses of that even now. Because he turns to his disciples in the crowd and he says, some of you are sitting here hearing these words right now and you will not die before you see the kingdom of God come in power. And in the very next set of verses, what happens? Jesus goes up uh, to the mountain with three of his followers and he is transfigured as they see him in all his glory. An initial fulfillment of this, that we would see God's kingdom coming in power. And these people standing right here are the ones who were standing with Jesus when He went to the cross and the ones who were desperately, agonizingly in despair when He died upon that cross and the ones who were plunged in cold, refreshing water again on the third day when they saw Him rise from the dead and they saw a picture of God's kingdom coming in power. And it points further on to when Jesus returns, the kingdom coming finally in power. But even now, don't you see, we see these good and beautiful pictures of the power of God, the kingdom of God at work right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you have seen that at work in your life as well, in those sweet moments where you see God's good work around you and in you. When He draws you in and lets you be a part of His work of healing the world when you see Him coming and bringing His finger of healing down into the core of your very heart, into areas of your life you didn't think anyone could touch, we are getting glimpses. The kingdom of God coming in power. What do we do when we give up everything? We get everything. We find ourselves. And we are embraced by God. And even now, we get these beautiful pictures what God is doing even now to put things right, we get in on that. When we give everything up, we get more than everything in return. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
that we might follow, that we might look squarely in the face of the cost of following you. We might give up the bench, that we might give up the throne. We might embrace the paradox of following you. We might see and step into the reality that we must lose ourselves to find ourselves. And then we might keep our eyes firmly on the promise of following you. We get ourselves back, made whole. That we get you forever. And that we can see it even now. Shake us up this week, Lord, that we might see that our lives are to be about following you. Take away our blindness. Open our eyes when we are not seeing your presence all around us every day, all the time. Disrupt our complacency with thinking little of you, with little contemplation of our lives, with little worship of you. May we find ourselves in you. And we ask this in the name of our powerful King and Savior, Jesus. Amen.